Anybody ever known somebody who literally had eyes in the back of their head? Uh, okay, interesting. Julie said mothers. Now, what I want you to know is that I never got away with anything in my life because my mom was a mom with eyes in the back of her head. And Miriam, my mom was a teacher. Teachers also have eyes in the back of their head. So I, I, I was just kind of, I was cooked any way around it. Bob? I think they can. Isn't that, a, it's kind of an uncanny sixth sense, isn't it? Um, and, and sometimes, uh, don't you know, that, um, that we kind of think we can fool our moms and just don't even try. Now, uh, mom's on my, my mind today. Um, um, she died 16 years ago this coming week. And so, you know, this is always one of those weeks when I think about her. When I think of rain in June, I think of um, that week because it was one of those uncanny rainy Junes. And uh, we were getting ready to move into this building and there was some damage done to one of the roofs here right before we moved in. And it was the week that mom died. And so I kind of never remember that. I'd never forget that back in 1999. But the other thing I remember as we're talking about this is, as I was reading some stuff about this, is, you know, mom just kind of knew what you were into. Now, and the other thing that's kind of brought that to mind this week is uh, our, um, we've had five little visitors in our house, three little kids and their parents, and it's kind of interesting to watch how Jake and Christy interact with those three little ones and, um, and how they just don't get away with much and, and kind of glad they don't. But, um, but isn't it interesting, even if you could fool a parent, that's possible, right? And sometimes you'll go to a family gathering years later and somebody will admit something and it'll blow the family gathering up, right? <laughs> Isn't it interesting? For those who attempt to fool God, I, I think one of the things that Amos is going to deal with with us in chapter 5 is uh, a group of people to whom he's preaching and prophesying, who kind of thought they got away with it. But the truth is, isn't it, that it makes no difference whether the inappropriate action is undertaken in the dark or on vacation or when no one seems to be watching, God always is. I got on an airplane years ago. I was uh, running a convention in Louisville, Kentucky, when I lived in Kentucky and had 800 attendees and it was, I was just... Um, had all kinds of pressure for the two or three weeks before it. And right in the middle of this convention, it was a three or four day convention, right in the middle of this convention, I get a phone call that my uncle, my dear fishing uncle in, in, in Midwest City had died. He had lung cancer and, um, and I'm probably closer to Rab than any other uncle I've ever had. And it was my, my aunt's, my mom's sister's husband. And, um, and I knew he was bad. He had lung cancer. And I knew he was really bad. But I just wasn't ready for that. But I literally, because I was in the middle of this project, I deferred my grief. And I got on an airplane in Louisville. I had no funeral clothes. You know, I was working with kids then. And I had no funeral clothes with me. So uh, I got out here and figured something out. Mom probably took me to Dillard's. I don't know what happened. But, but, um, but I remember I got on the airplane. And I got up in, in um, uh, we got started. And all of a sudden, it hit me where I was going. 
And I was just a bucket. I was a basket case in this airplane. I'm, and I'm looking around thinking, I hope nobody's watching me because they're going to think I'm losing my marbles, which, by the way, is a short putt, I know. <laughs> About that time, uh, there's, there's a guy sitting across the aisle from me, and for some reason we engaged in conversation, and he gave me a book. He gave me a book, um, and it was written by a guy that I'd only heard about at that time. Now, this was in the, in the early 90s. Um, a guy by the name of Bill Hybels, who uh, later on, you know, uh, I know a lot more about that I did in the, the, before I got here. And uh, uh, he gives me a book called, it's a book on character, and the title of the book, and I've used this book a lot, but this man who attended Willow Creek, uh, who I had never met before, handed me this book and said, I want you to have this. My pastor wrote it, called Who You Are When No One's Looking. It was, a de- it was Heibel's definition of character, and if you've never read it, I don't know if they still sell that in the bookstore or not, but it, it's, a, it's really a classic little book on developing character and why and not trying to get away with things. Well, isn't it interesting that, that the people of God even were infamous for the times throughout their history when they broke the covenant with God over and over and over again and God would send a prophet to remind them like Amos. Send a prophet to remind them of what they'd done. Perhaps they thought that God didn't really know, or perhaps they thought he didn't really care, but he did. Now, the year that we're talking about here is about 760 B.C. We mentioned that last time. Amos is reminding the people that God had chosen them from the, all the nations of the earth, but their actions didn't demonstrate appropriate gratitude for that kind of favor. Now, Um, Amos' mission included uh, challenging some kind of distorted views of worship. We're going to look at that. It's interesting. They regularly performed religious rituals. We'll get back to this in just a minute. They did all the things that were prescribed in the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, and all those places. Uh, But they also worshipped other gods. I just find that really intriguing. And you know what, um, what happened in the wake of that, and, and I'm going to tell you, it always does. When a people decides to worship God and, or someone other than God, who is the only object of our worship, then all kinds of immorality follows. You can see it in other cultures. You can see it in history. Look at the Romans, for instance, and look at 2015, the United States of America, for instance. When we begin to worship someone who is not in in a position of worship, then not only does weakness follow, but immorality kind of follows. And and so they entered into kind of this this time. Um, um, So, uh, you know, Charles Dickens, in the the kind of preamble, the beginning of the tale of two cities, um, uh, writes this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was an age of wisdom. It was an age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, but it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Don't you know... uh, uh, 
if, if uh, Amos had read those words, obviously thousands of years later, but if, if Amos read those words, he said, yep, I'm living in that day. And in some ways, you and I are living in that day. Now, what I'd like to do is, um, is for us to read a little bit. I want us just to read a couple of verses to start. Amos 5, verse 14 and 15. Bob, can I get you to start us? And as, as we do this, we're going to encounter some words here that are, that are pretty important. Uh, Bob, I'm going to have you read that, and then I'm going to do a little background. So... Okay, now as we begin to look at verse 14, all right, seek good and not evil. The, the verb tense there in the original language is, has a y'all implied in it, okay? It's a plural verb, okay? Not just you, Katie, seek good and not evil, but all of us. By the way, John's got thumbs up. He's wanting, he's wanting Katie to listen, I guess, but... Um, but, but the idea is, if Amos were here, he wouldn't say, um, he wouldn't say, um, Pat, I want you to listen to this. He would say, I want you, plural, to listen to this. So, so, Y'all. Yeah, he, he was probably from, you know, southern Judah, but he was from the southern kingdom. But, uh, so the idea is that this command that he's giving is for everyone. Everyone in the nation. Remember now, he is a southerner, but he's in the north in a precarious place, telling them he's reading their pedigree, and they're saying, go back south and pick your figs. You remember that deal? Okay, now, okay, so I, w I want us to go back just a little bit, because there are, uh, th the truth is that this passage begins with a pretty good ethical motto for life, um, in kind of ethics for my life. Look at verse 14 again. Um, it's the idea here, he says, um, seek good and not evil that you may live. That's, that's a pretty good start, right? Um, so um, uh, the word seek here, y'all seek, okay, uh, to live, it, actually this word seek comes, uh, has, comes before. Um, look in verse 4, okay, we're in chapter 5, look in verse 4. All right? For thus saith the Lord of the house of Israel, seek me that you may live. So he says it right there. Look at verse 5. Seek the Lord. Um, sorry, verse 5. But do not resort to Bethel, and do not come to Gogol, nor cross over to Beersheba, for Gogol will certainly captivity, and, and Bethel will come to trouble. There's a negative thing here. Do not, do not come to Gilgal. It's kind of that same idea of seeking there in verse 5. Now look at verse 6. Seek the Lord that you may live. Catch that? And first, just first several words there. And look, now we're at 14. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. All right, now. Uh, um, but here, he, he's really trying to get their attention on seeking God and changing the way they're living. But there's a, an accompanying, in verse 14, there's an accompanying promise or accompanying benefit. What is it? That you may live. Which, which is, there, some of that's implied in some of the others. But there's a new one even more than that. 
the Lord's going to be, remember the Lord's with you. So, uh, which is a wonderful promise here. I will be with you. Or uh, he says, he's reminding them, um, um, perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to you. Um, uh, and thus may the Lord of hosts be with you. This is kind of a wish. It's kind of what, what they want. And they really have thought all along that the Lord is with them. Okay? But, you know, the truth is, well, there comes a time, you know, when they decide kind of to walk away from him. And, and, um, and Amos is kind of dealing with this. Now, verse, look at verse 15. There's a lot of teaching in 15. I'm going to read it from the New American Standard. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Now, a couple of things we ought to catch here. Um, um, he is telling us here, so you can go ahead and fill in your, your blanks. He's telling us what to hate, what to love, and what to maintain. All right? What to hate, what to love, what to maintain. Now, that third command is really hard. Have they maintained justice in the land? We, we even heard him talk about it last week, didn't we? Go, go back up the page to verse 10. I'm going to read 10, 11, and 12. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. Now, the idea there is somebody is calling them out, including Amos himself, and they're just hating it. it it's literally, they don't like reading the truth. They don't like hearing the truth. Verse 11, Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor, Exact a tribute of grain from them. Though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. There, there's, the idea there of turning aside the poor in the gate is the idea of, of, um, of de, um, refusing justice to those who most need it. Uh, literally, the city gates were the place where kind of cases were heard. The elders would gather at the city gates and hear one person with a case against another. And they were denying the poorest among them who most needed justice. They were denying them justice. Really, things have not changed a whole lot, have they? Now, he mentions here, he mentions here the, um, uh, he kind of pronounces this, situation on, you notice he talks about the remnant of Joseph here. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. That the Lord of God, perhaps the Lord of God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Let's be sure we know what we're talking about here. Now, um, the remnant of Joseph, um, which Joseph is he talking about? Sorry? The son of Jacob, okay, um, but there you go. When you look at when you look at history, Old Testament history, Joseph is a supreme character. A lot is written about Joseph in the in the waning chapters of the book of Genesis. If you have never read his story and you're in any kind of leadership, you ought to. I was with a young leader on Friday, and we were talking about how his um, his new bosses are handing him all kinds of stuff to lead. I mean, and this kid's 30 years old, and they're handing him 
all kinds of stuff to lead over. And I said, Eli, you're a a modern-day Joseph to these guys. They know they can trust you. They know you've got integrity. They know you love the Lord. And and his bosses, the owners of his business, which is a a big, growing business, are, uh, are Christians themselves. They know that he'll handle whatever they hand him. Laura? I, I, I think that could be a part of it. Um, although, um, the two tribes of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, those were the two sons of Joseph that Jacob, on his deathbed, uh, kind of gave birthright to. So they became part of the 12 tribes. All right? Um, in other words, there's not just a tribe of Joseph, there's a tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, but they are the core, those tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, are kind of the core of the northern ten tribes that make up Israel, what, what's called Israel in these days. Remember I told you, after civil war, when we were talking last week, after civil war, there was the north, ten tribes, and then two tribes in the south. The two tribes in the south, of which Amos is a part, is known by then as Judah. The ten tribes in the north are known simply as Israel. They maintain the old name. But there's kind of a connection. Um, a lot, when you read through the prophets especially, you will, hear, uh, the, you will hear the northern tribes, Israel, referred to as Joseph. You'll hear them referred to as Ephraim sometimes. So uh, there, there is a part of them. There, there is still a remnant here. But the identification here, I think, in verse 15, is, is with that whole northern nation not just with the tribes of Joseph. Although, interestingly, in, in the land of the tribe of Manasseh is the town of Bethel, or Bethel. And at this point in history, Bethel is one of those places where they've established their own house of worship, complete with its own golden calf. Okay? So it kind of, kind of connects us a little bit here. All right? Uh, it, it's kind of a... It's an indictment against them. Uh, It's a reference probably more to Israel. Uh, And the the claim here, okay, is are you maintaining, he's asking this question, are you maintaining justice? And the implied answer is absolutely not. I read a story this week about a guy by the name of Mitch Torbett. He was living in Tennessee and he was applying for a construction permit in the town of Signal Mountain, Tennessee. I don't know where that is, but it sounds like a fun place. You know, Signal Mountain, Tennessee. It's probably you know I can I can hear I can hear banjo music when I hear that name. Huh? Ask uh, Wayne. will know where Signal Mountain, Tennessee is from. Uh, anyway, in Signal Mountain, Tennessee, he finds himself suddenly in handcuffs under arrest for a federal crime that he hadn't done. Actually, his identical twin brother had committed a federal crime, and all of a sudden, Mitch finds himself in handcuffs because somebody recognized him. A case of, clearly, a case of mistaken identity. The arresting officers would have none of it. They'd heard wild stories about, no, that was my twin brother before in Signal Mountain, Tennessee. So they put him in, they not only put him in handcuffs, but they put him in a county jail awaiting, um, awaiting extradition uh, for wherever this took place. And, um, and he's cooling his heels there for 36 months. The process eventually revealed that the, the wrong guy was behind bars because they may have had an identical face, but nobody has identical fingerprints. 
And so the FBI kind of apologized and admitted the mistake that the wrong person was entered on the legal documents and you know, all that kind of stuff. But obviously justice was not served. Now, one of the things you and I have got to ask ourselves, and we kind of dealt with this a little bit last week, is justice being served in my world? And the answer to that is probably not. But the question I've got to deal with, because I can't control what happens in high courts and in the legislature and in, you know, those places, other than by my vote, thank the Lord. But I can begin to deal with, am I living a life of justice? Am I seeking to live out justice in my own life? Now, we're going to continue to talk about this over these several weeks. John, I think about the, the folks with whom you work all over the world who have, because of someone, so many of those unrepresented people groups, have somebody up the food chain who's getting all of it. And other people are starving. Uh, for those of you who don't know John, he... He uh, is one of the VPs that feed the children. And one of the things you're dealing with on a daily basis is the lack of justice, equality, equity. Um, I used to take kids um, in eastern Kentucky at Christmas time. We would go, literally, I'd load up a van load of teenagers and we'd go find families who just didn't have anything. And we'd do Christmas for them. Um, it was one of the most fun things I did while I was in Kentucky. But there were places that people lived in when it was cold and snow on the ground that I can't believe, couldn't believe. Uh, you know, we hear about it here. And by the way, there are places in Oklahoma. There are places in Oklahoma City you can find kind of like that. But certainly in Appalachia, I could find it uh, fairly within a 15-minute drive, you know, where justice is not being served. And that's what Amos is crying out for. He's going to cry out for Worship that's goofed up, and for this justice to be served. Now, Bob, can I bug you to go back, and let's go back to verse 18. We're going to skip ahead a little bit. And Amos is going to begin to, um, to share, um, so he's going to begin to kind of uh, pronounce um, some woe here. And we're going to deal with that. Verse 18 and go down to 25, Bob, if you will. Okay, I want you to stop right there. I'm going to have you come back, okay? By the way, this is a great image, right? We'll get to it. You're getting ahead of me, so hang on, because I love this image in verse 19. Now, he begins here. He's been talking about um, there are three what we're going to call woe or oracles here. Uh, I put the references in. Look, look at, he's going to begin here in 3-1 and 4-1 and 5-1 and then uh, here in 6-1. In, in 3-1, Hear the word of the Lord. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you. Get that? Okay, look at chapter 4. Hear this word. And he calls them cows. I think that's interesting. Okay, look at verse five, chapter 5, which we're, we're in now. Hear this word which I take up for you as a dirge, O house of Israel. Okay, now these, the object of these three woe oracles, that each of these chapters have a woe in them. And by the way, you've got to, got to connect here. For those of, old, those of us old enough to remember, this is not the Fonz saying, 
Whoa. Okay? This is God saying, woe on you. This is not good. Right? Now, what the issue, what the issue is here, okay, in, in 6.1, um, um, you've heard this one, woe to those who are at ease in, in Zion. Uh, there, are, there are a couple of passages here where Amos begins to invoke, and the New Testament writers, including Peter, pick up on this a little bit. He, he begins to pronounce this woe on those who are at ease in the nation, those who have not addressed the things they need to address. And um, um, he's really dealing here with a concept that many of the New Testament writers pick up on, and the, and the, the prophet Isaiah does too, uh, called the, the day of the Lord. And we're going to talk about the day of the Lord in just a minute. You're reading about it here in 518 and also in 61. The, the issue is here, the people all along have looked forward to the day of the Lord. And what is, in chapter 5, what is Amos saying about the day of the Lord? You're not going to like it. Okay? Let's think about that for just a second. When you think about the beginning of eternity, are you like me on certain days, and Carolyn Morgan, who I get to the pleasure of working with every day, uh, know that there were a couple of days this week where if the Lord were t getting up a busload to go to heaven, I would say, count me in, get me, <laughs> buy me a seat. Um, you know what I mean? There, there, there's, I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm ready to go, and I'm kind of worn out from this life. Uh, maybe you have days like that, but okay, just telling you. But, you know, I lost my phone for a day and a half and it was driving me crazy, you know. Uh, all right. I know it's first world problems. I get that. But, you know, you just go through several frustrations. And it's like, Lord, if eternity started today, I wouldn't be disappointed at all. I'm kind of ready to go and I'm frankly looking forward to it. But you know that that's not a universal emotion. In fact, there may be people in your office where you work or maybe people in the apartment complex or, or the housing development where you live or there may be people even in your family around um, the dinner table when you get together for extended gatherings who if you said eternity is going to begin today, they would say, oh, no, 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 not, not, not now. I'm not ready. Haven't really thought about it. Haven't really planned for it. And one of my responsibilities is to make sure that the people that I love in my life, the people over whom I've got some influence, are preparing for that day. It's not enough for me to just to be ready. But what we're dealing with here are some people who are at ease in their lifestyle. And what Amos is saying is, you've been looking for the day of the Lord to come, you're not going to like it. Now, uh, okay, Bob, can you pick up where you started, stopped and go on? Okay, stop right there. I'm going to have to pick up again in a minute, all right? Now, the two illustrations of verse 19 are really interesting, okay? I'm running from a lion and I run into a bear. That's kind of a bad day. <laughs> you know? Can you imagine? I'm running from a lion and guess who gets me? A bear. What's the second one? The second one's, you know, I'm, I'm um, 
worn out. I get into the safety of my home and I lean against the wall only to be accosted by a poisonous snake. Okay? Now that's a bad day. That's the imagery he's using here to describe how the day of the Lord is going to be for those who are kind of unrepentant and unjust. I don't want to be in that group. Do you? I just kind of don't want to be in that group. Okay? So, uh, these two illustrations illustrate, I think, the impossibility, the futility of trying to hide from God. It's like, yeah, I can, I'll do this and I'll get away with it. I'll do this and I'll get away with it. And uh, the prophet Amos says, it's like you're running from a lion, you're going to run right into a bear. Yes. In fact, he's going to warn him here about the darkness. Now, we'll deal with that in just a second here because the darkness, this day of judgment in verse 20 will be a dark day. Now, I put a bunch of references here that all talk about the day of judgment being a day of darkness. Now, why would, it's interesting that ancient people groups really feared the darkness. Any thoughts on that? Well, you certainly don't know what's there. Hey, stuff can jump out and get you. You're right. Now, it's interesting because you and I may have driven through places um, uh, out in the country where there are no street lamps. But generally, even when we're driving at night, there's all kinds of lighted things to kind of keep us on the right path, right? Including the lights on our car. That was not their day. If I was walking from my house to your house, there's not a source of light to lead the way unless I take it with me, okay? It was a dangerous time, a dangerous place to live. And darkness, the idea was um, they got most of their stuff done in the daytime because after dark, it was just kind of dangerous to be out. It wasn't like it is for us today. We're so used to going to the, to the switch on the wall and the lights come on. That's not how it was. So when, when Amos is predicting a day of darkness, this is a scary thing. Uh, it's, it's foreboding. When my kids were little bitty, uh, they would stay with my dad and mom sometimes for a week or two in the summer. And um, <laughs> my dad actually coined this term um, with kind of Jake's help. They... Um, they would be a little scared because they weren't in their own rooms back home in Kentucky, and they'd be here in mom and dad's place in, in Midwest City. So, um, so they um, would kind of cry out and say, um, Grandpa, you got to come in here and, and turn a light on. There's not enough light in here. So dad fixed them a night light, put it in the room, and they started calling it a nuff light. It was a nuff light, N-U-F-F light, Okay. Enough light. Now we. Now you got enough light. Do you need enough light? That was kind of the, the phrase. Well, the issue is when when this judgment comes, when the day of Lord, the Lord comes, they're going to be looking for enough light, and it's going to be nothing but darkness. Can't see your hand in front of your face, kind of darkness. It should be scary. That's not what they're looking forward to, but that's how it's going to be. Bob, how far did you get? 
go on now back to 21 and go down to 25. Thank you. Okay, now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to the book of Leviticus. If you want to track me back there, you can. But at the very beginning of the book of Leviticus, there is a description of the kind of sacrifices that the Lord is looking for. And um, in, I'm going to read from Leviticus 1, verse 9 and 13. And I want you, as I'm reading it, I want you to smell it. Okay? You got a good smell memory? I got a great smell memory. All right, here we go, verse 9. Uh, it's talking about that you putting a putting a um, a fire on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs, he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Now that's one nine of the book of Leviticus. Look down at verse thirteen. The entrails again. We're talking about the innards. However, and the legs, he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It's a burnt offering, an offering by fire of some of soothing aroma to the, the Lord. Now, here's the, here's, the, here's the smell memory I want you to have, okay? The smell memory is a barbecue. The smell memory is if you've ever been to kind of an outdoor event or a, a place where they're smoking meats outside, when you walk up to it, maybe for a mile, you can smell it. Mike, you smoke meat. You know what I'm talking about, okay? As you walk up to it, it just smells heavenly. That's the soothing aroma the Lord is smelling with this sacrifice that's being offered. But there's a problem, okay? I want, I'm, I'm going to go, if you're with me in, the verse of, in uh, Leviticus, I'm going to go now over to chapter 26. Here's how, that's what he wants. That's what he wants. He wants to, he wants to, Smell the barbecue. You know, he wants to smell that wonderful sacrifice burning on the altar. But listen to what he says in chapter 26, and I'm going to read um, verse 31. I will lay waste your cities as well and make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your soothing aromas. I put some other passages in here that begin to indicate, the other prophets are indicating that when the Lord smells your sacrifice and says to them, it stinks. It no longer smells like Swadley's barbecue from the outside, you know, when you're walking in. It no longer smells like that. It's to him, oh. Same stuff. Same stuff going on the altar. They're getting it all right. All the prescriptions they're, they're doing from the book of Leviticus. But the difference is their heart is not right within them. What I want to tell you is there is a difference. And I want you this to stick with you. And I want you to think about this when you go into the sanctuary today. There is a difference between ritual and ritualism. What are the rituals that we have at crossings that are good? 
Communion. First Sunday of the month, if you go to the chapel service, it's every week. There's, it's wonderful. It's, it's a ritual. It's a rite. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a kind of a piece of worship that, that reminds us of the right things. In, in this case, the sacrifice of Jesus. What are other rituals that we do? I'm sorry? Prayer. Okay. Baptism. Songs. We're singing songs. Uh, we hear a message. We hopefully take an offering. Okay? Now, all those things are kind of part of kind of the ritual of crossings. And they're all really good unless there's no heart in it. In fact, the indication from Amos and the other prophets that I cited here, the indication from the prophets is I can get it all perfectly right. We can sing every song with perfect intonation. But if there's no heart in it, the Lord sniffs it and says, oh, isn't it interesting that I could put the right meat on the grill, but if my heart's not right, it stinks to God. There's a difference between ritual and ritualism. Doing the same thing over and over and over again, and I'm doing it again just because I did it that way before. And I might get it perfectly right. I may do it for 35 years and realize that, boy, you know, I'm getting really good at this. But my heart's just not really engaged. It's kind of the issue here he's going after. And part of it is this issue of they're worshiping, but they're not taking care of the people they need to take care of. He says in verse, in essence, in verse 22 that Bob read, we can't buy God's approval. In verse 23, the kind of the idea here is the sound of songs, no matter how well embellished, no matter how well played or sung, require white heart and conduct. Otherwise, and we looked at it a few weeks ago when we studied 1 Corinthians 13, otherwise, it's just noise. And I want you to think as you go into our sanctuary today, am I just making noise or am I really worshiping the Lord? Now I'm going to quickly go back to Amos 5 and I want to read Four verses real quickly, starting with verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? You've been doing it for a long time. You also carried, that was a rhetorical question, by the way. You also carried along Siketh, your king, and Kian, your images, the star of your gods which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. I read uh, a speech this week. It was kind of a, an article that was written and later delivered as a speech by Martin Luther King in, in the year 1964. I want to read just an excerpt from it. He did a, he did a, um, a kind of an essay every year on the state of... Um, of civil rights in the United States. I, I think we're in worse shape now than we were then, in some ways. But he'll say, the fluidity and instability of the American and public opinion on questions of social change is very marked. There would have been no civil rights progress nor a nuclear test ban treaty without resolute presidential leadership. The issues which must be decided are momentous. The contest is not tranquil and relaxed. The search for a consensus will tend to become a quest for the least common denominator to change. 
In an atmosphere devoid of urgency, the American people can easily be stupefied into accepting slow reform, which in practice would be inadequate reform. Listen to his next sentence. Let justice roll down like waters in a mighty stream, said the prophet Amos. He was seeking not consensus, but the cleansing action of revolutionary change. What Dr. King was saying is, you know what? We may not all agree on it, but if it's right, we got to get it done. And it wasn't happening in the nation of Israel. So, as it turns out, Amos was right. It's the year 760 when he declares this. In, by 722, the king of Assyria comes down and just destroys it all, takes them all captive. They didn't listen to Amos' message. Now here's what I want to say to you as we kind of close this out. Perhaps you've heard the old saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Well, that's a good axiom regarding our dealings with other people. But God doesn't take a position toward us since he can't be fooled at all, even once. How amazing to see then the people of God living as if God can be fooled or at least not caring about what they're doing. And he's talking specifically here through this entire book of Amos about those who are being taken advantage of. Now here's what I want you to think about as you go through the next week. Is there... Someone, or a group of someones, in your daily walk, that you are ignoring. You're ignoring their plight. Uh, when you hear about it on the news, you may not turn to the channel, but in your mind, you turn it off. And yet, could it be, here's my question, could it be that like Amos is crying out to the nation of Israel... Could it be that there's a group of people that you have previously said, that's just kind of not my deal, that the Lord is trying to call your attention to? Um, there are those of us who grew up in certain areas of the country where some of this is really hard. There are others of us who are, who are blinded by uh, kind of the area of country that you grew up. But the question is, what is God calling us to do? And it's going to need to begin with me. Where can I, where can I begin to live out God's kind of justice in my world, in my office, in my neighborhood, in my family, in my friendships? I think he's asking us that question. And he's saying, what we need now, and I'm going to suggest more than ever, more than in 760 B.C. and more than in 1964, we need justice to roll down like a mighty river. And it's going to have to begin with me. All right, I'll see you next week. I've forgotten what I've studied for next week, so I'll, I'll have to give it to you by email.